I I was looking at the um, who was it? Was it what's her name? Is it Spiff or I can't remember the name of the the female DJ in that one. Steph Blondon. Yes. So cool. I was like, Kim K is going to steal her look soon and then sue her for stealing her look. <laughs> oh, that's all I saw. I'm like, this is all ca- going to get Kardashian out. Yeah. This is a good remix. Sorry, Oh, this is the remix? Oh. Do you put this in your spin? I played this one. Ooh, I like that. A lot more Sean Paul to it. I can't believe Sean Paul still working. I was thinking this that like recently because he put out a new song and I was like, oh. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Like, I love Sean Paul. Like, I'm not oh, even yeah, complaining. Yeah. I would say it's probably because he was smart enough to keep his career rooted in Jamaican dance hall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He never scene, really fucked with like, his sound. Yeah. He never he never truly left that scene. Yeah. yeah. He would always he disappeared from the North American. Yes, yeah, 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 yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but he, he kept always working, kept, yeah. And once you you keep in that scene, you always have outlet to England, right? Yeah. At least. And yeah, Toronto yeah. and parts <laughs> of the States. Yeah, so yeah. you're always kind of relevant in those yeah. like it's it's kind of it's actually really smart. Like he stuck to the grassroots throughout his yeah, career, but also I would he say. Didn't, like do other shit and then become tackier. Right. Like, or like lose. You right. Know, like, I think he's sort of preserved in people's Yes, memory. yes, 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 yes. Because there was like um Sean Paul fatigue for a while. For yeah, a, yeah for a little was. bit for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Hmm. But he kept he at least kept with, you know, with his roots and was like still involved so like Sean i would Paul still when he came to blues fest <laughs> did you <laughs> yeah in like 2008 or something did i i had a girl I... <gasps> no I, a girl. Saw, I saw him in montreal that's where i wow. saw wow yeah Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. I'm Erica. And I'm Amy. And Amy, it's so nice to have you back. Oh, it's good Yay. to be back. Um, so you've missed the past two weeks, and I, f- I feel like you haven't been away just because we saw you the other night. And yeah. It's like those two weeks were just Plus erased. on the internet. So. Plus on the internet, yes. It's been, it's been a very productive and eventful couple of weeks, so. Oh, listen. It, the news has been out of control. It has consumed yeah. my life. And all of our lives. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been a lot. This weekend's been nice to kind of have a moment mm-hmm. to like unwind and not mm-hmm. anticipate anything coming up this week. Totally. <sighs> Erica, how are you? I. <laughs> oh, my gosh. This week has just been like, can we? I feel like International Women's Day went the way of Black History Month this year. And I want to redo that's what I feel. Ooh, elaborate. I just feel like I'm like it's 2019 and we're still here with it's it's the same old like International Women's Day look, but like hyper realized. Do you know what I mean? It's it's the 
it's all these events and I feel like they're more corporate women's events than there are like kind of, you know, social, mm. social justice events. And when it gets corporate, it gets to the point where it's very stripped down and we're not talking about um, almost like equity. We're not talking about equity anymore. We're talking about how we need more women on boards and how we mm. need more women, you know, in top positions where they can take advantage of other women. Like, I feel like it's like everything else, though. Like yeah. once it becomes one commercialized into like part of corporate branding, like you breast know, cancer like, awareness or pride or like, you yeah. know, it's just you lose all the like sort of structural arguments. Um, I don't think we're completely there but it's like definitely increasing year to year and it's become yeah. a gimmicky day like where yeah, people just I really use it as a branding year. exercise yeah. but I mean the trick is to kind of do your own thing and like every holiday you gotta opt out <laughs> keep it traditional fair hang out with your chosen family yeah, put out milk and cookies for yourself you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh sounds great I had a donut on International Women's nice. Day I actually had a nice International Women's Day. The men in our office like organized a breakfast, like put up signs. Oh, like we're blowing up. Like we're all in our office and you just like hear all the men like whispering and blowing balloons in the hallway. And like that's (laughs) cute. Get you a workplace life. (laughs) People brought in breakfast things, like not just the guys, but, you know, um, other folks in the office. Like everyone Hmm. sort of pitched in and. It was it was a it was a very lovely vibe. That's awesome. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Huh. Cool. Flowers and yeah. Nice. Uh that yeah. didn't happen in my office. Yeah. Um we did have a departmental International Women's Day event. Um I didn't go mostly out of spite. No, but like for what or in him? It was about like people talking, like senior executives talking about um, how like the impact women in the workplace have had on their work and in their policy making, etc. And that's fine, and how they've advanced in their career. Um, it was three people on the panel, and as soon as I saw that there was a man, I was like, absolutely not going. Mm. Well, here's my other problem. Okay, is when you get to this corporate. <laughs> you know, level of, of recognition, then you get corporate actors and you know, there's going to be men there. You're, you know, there's going to be men taking up space. Yeah. Well, anywhere there people want credit for shit. Yeah. I think the best part of our party was that the men also cleaned up. Nice. What? Nice. Yeah. What? Look at that. Great. No, yeah. Huh. Great. So <clears throat> I had mentioned to you, uh, in our group chat that I am, our GBA plus representative at work Mm -hmm. and um, we are implementing a new uh, remote or teleworking policy. And so at our like group meeting of like a hundred people, I asked the executives, I was like, so has this bit gone through GBA, like a gender based analysis? They're like, Oh no. (laughs) So like, this is going to be my like big contribution to international or uh, women's history month is um, reviewing this policy once they finalize it to for gba right um um but anyway um a lot of people were like oh what do you mean there's gba analysis for this policy everyone was shocked they had never like it wouldn't even have considered they wouldn't have even wow. considered it 
And so part of when they were presenting this idea, they were like, oh, well, because people will be working from home or remotely more regularly, we'll have to really make an effort to make sure we're always having a teleconference line open and that these people are, we can access them. And I was like, oh, cool. Who does that labor always fall to? It always falls to the fucking women in the team who are like, oh, uh, well, we need to call so-and-so and make sure that they're participating. And so part of what I want to do is make sure that that work is constant, is not constantly falling to the women because it's just extra emotional labor, and much like cleaning the kitchen or... Mm-hmm. And don't schedule, like, telework, like, these conferences at, like, daycare pickup times mm-hmm. and drop-off times and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Like... Don't call people at 9 a.m. when they're about to walk into work. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have I have feelings about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Especially randomly. If you know you have yeah. a meeting at 9, different story. Yeah. Yeah. Random phone calls at 9 o'clock aren't on. Anyway. So uh, let's get into it, shall we? So... In the days after Jody Wilson-Raybould's resignation from the federal cabinet, reports suggested that she was difficult, not a team player, and even mean. Supporters denounced this framing and pointed to its gendered and racialized undertones, a criticism with which the prime minister eventually agreed. Even so, media coverage came to a complete came complete with editorial cartoons depicting Wilson Raybould bound, gagged, and beaten, as we discussed in a previous Misogynist of the Week episode. As the days wore on, a caucus colleague suggested that Wilson Raybould couldn't handle the pressure of her cabinet position. Racialized candidates' coverage is as plentiful but more negative than that of white candidates. Their coverage focuses less on politically salient issues and is more likely to mention aspects of the candidates' backgrounds, like their race, immigration status, or religion, than is the case for white candidates. Racialized candidates are less likely to be quoted and more likely to be featured in stories that are buried on the sides of pr- inside pages of print editions. These patterns give racialized candidates less vil- visibility and credibility. Race influences how journalists decide to frame and portray their subjects. This type of coverage cues voters to apply racial considerations to their evaluations of politicians. It is grounded in assumptions about the meaning, importance, and consequences of race. One aspect of this process is to assume that race is only relevant to subjects with minority racial backgrounds. Because of this, stories will often advance racial explanations in the cover coverage of racialized subjects but not in those about white subjects the canadian press style book a reference for print journalists provides some guidelines in its section on race and ethnicity journalists are counseled to quote identify a person by race color national origin or immigration status only when it is truly pertinent however it goes on to say that race that quote race is pertinent in reporting an accomplishment unusual in a particular race for example, if a Canadian of Chinese origin is named the Canadian Football Hall of Fame, end quote. Great um, example, thanks. Um, wow, that's unique. <laughs> so uh, we are actually kind of seeing this play out in both Canada and the U.S. Um, in Canada, in particular, we've got Jody Wilson-Raybould, but we also have Selena Cesar Chavanez, um, who actually, um, it was right before the weekend hit, um, a, a huge story came out in the Globe and Mail that 
kind of gave reasons for her resignation or her op decision to not seek re-election in the 2019 election. So Erica, I know you have some thoughts on this. Specifically? Um, yeah, I think there are a lot of people who think that um, race is something that you can turn on and off. There are a lot of people who would say, well, it's not about race. And when you're racialized, everything is about race. Just like when you're a woman, the once you're operating within a mask, a male dominated framework, everything is about like being that other, right? Other than the status quo, other than the baseline. So for those who are like, well, you know, it's not about race. Um, how nice for you. You have you have that option. And so I would also like to say that the media coverage has been disappointing at best and a little racist in other and sexist while well, racist and misogynistic in other ways. We have the editorial cartoons that we had talked about before a couple of misogynists of the weeks ago, actually probably three, um, where you depicted a sitting minister bound and gagged and beaten. And, you know, we are told that, oh, it's just virtue signaling, that you guys are just being too sensitive. And I think that the onus on... um, women of color especially to be the perfect candidate to be perfect in every way to have no slights no black marks nothing is very very real and it's very it's a heavy burden to carry so um good on those women for speaking out because i can only imagine like what that's like carrying that burden every what we I don't have to imagine it, actually. So, but in their sort of level and their line of work, I can only imagine what it means to carry that burden. So, Amy, um, Fox host Janine Pirro is has actually gone on the record. <laughs> I mean, not that she's you know a uh, bastion of you know anything. Um, <laughs> has said that Ilan Omar's hijab may mean that she's against the Constitution. Oh, Lord. And she supports Sharia law. Yeah, I guess you could project whatever you want when you start with racist stereotypes as your premise and go from there. Um, I mean, yeah, you're seeing a lot of um, a lot of this in both American and, and Canadian ma- media. And I'd just like to point out that the the excerpt that you read at the top is uh, from Aaron Tolley, who's a prof who you know does uh, writing on uh, race and media. Um, and has is a great wealth uh, of information. People want to learn more about this subject from from um, academic perspective, um, because it is pretty pervasive and and um, imp- and it's rooted, you know, structurally in in the guide, in, like in the you know in the uh, Canadian Press Guide, but other um, tools in in journalism schools the world over. Like these are, um, you know, sort of structurally how p- folks have been trained to think about race, and there's never been a re re conceptualization that's you know keeping on par with what are where our social understanding and our um, academic understanding of race is now 
Um, and, you know, and it's part like partly it's who's in the newsroom. It's more so who's editing the papers. And beyond that, it's who owns them. Um, that's that's really the issue here. Um, and that's sort of what decides, you know, how, what gets said and how it gets said and and what. You know, we don't have debates about journalistic ethics from the perspective of race. You know, it's like it's it's not it does it's not part of that that calculation. No one is screening uh, for that. But I think like that would an orientation towards that from like an an ethical um, and biased standpoint would be really significant. So going back to um, Jody Wilson-Raybould, so what does this her situation say about the federal liberals and Justin Trudeau in the way that they have allowed her to be treated by people within the party, you know, that whisper campaign, Mm -hmm. calling her difficult, calling Mm -hmm. her mean, uh, not a team player. And one, allowing that to happen, two, even saying it, but then three, waiting so long for it to kind of... Well, they're facilitating it. There's no, like, there's no question that they're, that it's a concerted effort to uh, delegitimize the claims that she's making and cast her as being um, vindictive and ultimately casting the whatever, you know, soft influence the PM's office has admitted to sort of exerting on her around the uh, deferred prosecution agreement as being a legitimate form of, of politicking her uh because she was difficult and um you know like they almost even in jerry butts's testimony talk about her as almost being obstructionist like she was Mm. so so she was her mind was so closed and she was unapproached like she was not willing to reconsider and then you add that people have been saying she's difficult and you know and i've heard from some liberal staffers also saying you know she is she was difficult to work with and i wonder too you know like that white staffers you know working under her may have also found her to be a difficult boss for a whole other set of reasons so we see that in workplaces the world over where you know folks will have like a really stern male boss and be like oh he's so assertive and like you know that's mm-hmm. uh he's Where's a, a great, woman he's a great mentor but like a tough woman you know and especially a woman of color um gets a very different um reception even conducting herself in the same way um i have and no doubt that she's probably a tough person sure she and right like and she, she rightly would have so, to be um, but I've never heard anything about her being abusive or mm-hmm. like difficult in a weird way. And it's really funny to me that people are selective about what kind of abuse they'll tolerate. They'll, you know, like what, or what difficult She's, means. Like difficult is like someone is is tough and they're stern and they're direct. Like that's yeah. what to me it translates to. Like difficult is like yeah, you probably didn't get along, right? But like, whereas like they've been turning a blind eye to all this other like actually abusive behavior that some P- MPs exert and ministers exert over their staff. No, you never hear a fucking peep about that, mm-hmm. you know. So I think that's really strange. And then there's this whole conversation, the same thing that's been said about um, MP Selena, this idea that, well, which is what essentially Justin Trudeau said to her. It's like, you should be grateful everything that I've done for you. And that's really the subtext of all of these situations is like you are indebted, like you were nothing. And then we made you something. And how dare you? Turn your back on us. Yeah, you you just sit down that in the back bench. You were a a marginal, nothing person, and we plucked you. You need us more than we need you. Is essentially you're disposable. You're disposable, and that's um, and I think that's the message, the subliminal message that I know as women of color we're receiving Mm. is that you're disposable. Be thankful that you got 
as as high as you did because you're not worth anything else and it 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 really is uh yet another like schizophrenic approach to the way we think about power and marginalized voices it's like we're supposed to be there and look and look the part whatever that is look thankful look indebted look um yet look competent i suppose but when your competence um gets to be too much for the party in other words if you decide that you your values and following those values whether it means following your job or following your ethics means that it rubs up against what the party wants and the party is Justin Trudeau and what he wants, then you are to be tossed out. You're to be demoted and belittled and a whisper campaign is to be told. And and have Sheila Copps uh, advocate. Don't even- I mean, we'll get to her, but like advocate that you leave the party altogether. Like even the party mm-hmm. as an institution is, you know, made in Justin Trudeau's image now. That's apparently. right. It's like That's a, right. Apparently. You know, it's cult of personality, just well, like in the United States. Exactly. 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 Is that, so it's, it's not that enough cult that you of personality. the and ministry or caucus. You Suddenly now you have to leave the party altogether because you, you your values are so disaligned. It's like, oh, I thought you were the big tent. So the, like, the fuck are you on about? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And let's not pretend that uh, that nobody sees, or at least at least we as people of color don't see that there are two women of color in caucus who decide to leave. Okay, the other the other woman who decided to resign from um, from caucus, no, not from cabinet. caucus, from cabinet, is you know another st- what what I understood to be told another strong willed woman mm-hmm, who mm-hmm. who who decided that you know. I have principles and and was an ally. I and think was like an ally. oh, you have to remember way. she was the minister of, of indigenous services. Right. Did yeah. work closely with Jody Wilson Raybould. They were friends. For what that means, I think they, they she probably shared a lot of the same frustrations. And just to go back to to um, Jody being difficult, so called. It's like I mean that's been said before, even during. Um, the um you know standoff with the rcmp and bc with the first nations community there and the pipeline uh there were rumors of around you know her her response to within caucus about that whole episode and i and i'm sure this has been brewing for a while but sometimes it's even like the the political is coming from an from an equity lens it's not just a question of identity and i think that's what people are losing it's like not just because you're racialized that you necessarily experience these things it's because your race brings with it certain perspectives um and political positions and policy viewpoints so i don't you know i don't think Jody Wilson Raybould want it wants a society that you know looks the other way when corporations especially the ones that have been involved in a lot of you know public projects that have you know destroyed some communities or have you know like you know SNC's involvement in some of the the pipeline work and and in the government sort of um uh, sort of bulldozing over of the rights of, of a community that she's a part of. Um, like those are n- in not just a question of identity, but it's like, it's also a question of politics and you can't, you know, it's sort of what we said in the op-ed. It's like there, you can't bring people in and just expect them to, um, you know, display their race without 
having behind that or their gender as the case may be or both uh, without coming with ideas that are radically different than the status quo that's the whole that's what makes it I think so rad that they're there I think people need to understand that people's identity comes with politics exactly and Mm -hmm. they cannot be divided they cannot be taken out and come and trans and trans and they can't be taken out and be treated as though they can be put on and taken off at will. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So that was going to be my next question is that, you know, this, these and things that people were saying about Wilson Raybould, about that she was um, mean and not a team player. Is it possible for us to divorce those like those things like sorry can we divorce the fact that she was like were those things because she was a woman or because she was a racialized woman or or racialized or were they both like would those things have been said about like jane philpot for example or is this something that only like well, a they raci- definitely weren't said about jane philpot like that well, was really stark to me well the other thing well yeah if, if, sorry if the roles had been reversed right. like well i i think that you know number one that's a question for them to answer, to be honest. Uh, you know, would this have been different? I Okay, from what I saw from the whole Jane Philpott, the reaction to Jane Philpott's re- resignation, it was, um, what's his name? Bill Morneau and his sexism. Mm. About, oh, well, which, which implied, oh, well, they're friends. Which which implied that oh well women go to the bathroom they don't have a apparently we don't have individual minds all they do apparently, is giggle and like braid their each yeah, other's yeah. hair <laughs> yeah exactly and um, we don't we don't apparently we don't have individual brains according to Bill Morneau we have shared brains so you know we 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 must have a sub like that's where it's going that we have this subset of intelligence compared to men that's basically what he said you know if you want to read between the lines that's exactly what he said yeah women have no autonomy yeah we have no autonomy and a be- amongst us we share one brain apparently. Well, and, and what's sort of been repeated like repeated again by shilla cops but also it's funny enough um Jason Kenney Happy had International yeah. Women's Day from Jason Sheila Ken- Cox yeah. and the Liberals. Jason Kenney had a weird little press conference on International Women's Day about how, you know, you need more women in politics. They've been outside of politics for so long. And, you know, they don't have the same networks as men. True. They don't have the fundraising. True. Uh, and, and, you know, they don't have the same political, tactical abilities. You know, and then he like kind of like he fumbled on that for a while. And then he, he was like <laughs> kind of going off script. And then he kind of brings it back. And it's like, you know, because they've been doing other things, more important things. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're they're not tactical in the same way. Wow. There's a different way. And he just sort of like fumbled wow. it. But that's essentially the subtext of also of this is in, in the James Philpott thing as well and you know it's like she she couldn't possibly have resigned because it's like for anything strategic or with any sort of critical thought involved and it wasn't because that's exactly it it wasn't because it was actually in spite of uh you know it's it's because of her lack of political acumen and like that's what i think a lot of people have been repeating is like these people are green and and that's and that's you know specifically something sheila cops had targeted at jane philpon as well which was like pretty ridiculous to say for someone who had like such a um 
um, expansive and like international career as like a doctor um, and professor for many years and uh, on a like very significant That's platform. That's the other thing. They but, reduce these women to to these political hacks. Well, that's mm-hmm. it. And frankly, that's what we need less of in politics is this sort of hackery, like, you know, where apparently, you know, if you're in politics long enough, someone will, you know, body snatch you or like take your brain and you're just like spewing nonsense. Because that's what they do. So, well, that's clearly what happened to Sheila Copps, whose brain is rotted from the inside. <laughs> but it's She's wild. just rotten. It's okay, wild. From but, the but, inside. But there's so, been so much hackery online. It's wild. And these people think that it's par- put, like makes them politically savvy to say, how dare you go against ca- like cabinet? Well, it's like, first of all, no, they didn't. They, they resigned uh, because they lost confidence in the prime minister. That's fairly respectable position to take. They're still in caucus because they haven't done anything insidious enough to have them kicked out of caucus. A year ago, you wouldn't kick people out of caucus who had assaulted people who were staffers, mm. be, you know, and it took you a while to drag your ass there till you decided that Mike it was dropped. politically savvy enough to do that. Like, yeah. you know, go fuck yourselves. Like yeah. this whole idea that, you know, um, it's not politically savvy to take positions or, or to, to come out and take critical views on public policy issues that you are the expert of. Like this is a fucking AG talking about public prosecutions and like political interference I don't want to hear what anyone else thinks but her, frankly. Well, can we also say that let me let me just put into context what they were harassing her to do. And there was a conspiracy of harassment. You can't tell me anything that there was no. Oh, well, you think all those staffers came individually just out of their own concern? No, it was a conspiracy. Okay, first of all, second of all. As said last week, she, the decision was already made. The decision was made, and what they were asking her to do was to override a decision that was already made. Now, second of all, or third, whatever, whatever number I'm on, the think about what position she would have been in had she been brought up on ethical charges in terms of making overriding a de- overturning a decision for political gain well they Why? argue she could have changed her position at any time oh and please oh with, please. with no with no obviously with no evidence that there anything had changed in the circumstances but you're right like she could have been on the hook down the line and i think where she, would they i think have she been? was covered i think she would they would have hung her out to dry yeah for sure she would have taken the fall for everything yeah. and um so I mean, this is self-preservation too you know, I'm not saying that she didn't do it because it was ethical. That's not what I'm saying. No, but, I think she made yeah. it. She made a, a informed decision, and it. And as they keep repeating, it was her decision to make. What? And there's so many folks, and like at the end, and and we've lost sight of like the whole crux of this thing, which is like, why the fuck is like SNC Lavlin have a direct line to the fucking clerk of the Privy Council, and why Thank does you? You know, and why is the PMO, like PMO brokering deals on behalf of SNC that SNC already got a rejection on. Like, it just doesn't make any like it, it's just it's scary. Pull and those people out and like, you know, this is call this- their, you know, call their, uh, you know, political savvy and their and their expertise into question. And that's why, you know, that's why people are like, we need a public inquiry is because it's not just about you know, an H it's not just an HR issue, you know, it is an issue about the, um, 
the quality of our judicial system Mm -hmm. and the independence that is embedded in that quality Mm -hmm. of our judicial system. This is a really, really big deal. And it disgusts me to hear. First of all, why is um, Christy Clark the crook? On oh. on P on <laughs> on fucking power and politics, talking about how dare she not she not save nine thousand jobs? Well, if she's not going to say, I'm like, you are responsible for corruption in BC casinos, and you're how the fuck? I mean, did and she the, get and everything that? else, and really. everything else in BC, and you're you're out here. Part, I don't understand. Like that to me shows um, uh, a manipulation. And a distortion of our of of our perceived ethics in this country. The fact that Christy Clark can get up there well, and that she's not fucking indicted. And to, and to bring to it be back honest. to the media, which I, I think we've deviated a little yeah. bit from to sort of speak a bit more globally, but to take it back to the media, it's it's wild that they allow Christy Clark to take up any space on any you know, at any, Conrad at, Black. Well, no, but on any broadcast without disclosing that she has received money from SNC Lavalin. Yeah, she has received. She and her like the BC Liberals received a couple hundred thousand dollars in donations from the former chair or the current chair of SNC Lavalin between 2007 and 2013. Um, and they and the, that the chair at the time was a key advisor to Christy Clark. It is ridiculous that that is not mm-hmm. put that in the fucking guide in terms of things that you have to disclose. Yeah. Um, and, and write about when you have or, you know, when you have a guest on and ask her that question and yes. ask like, put where's that the journalism? Her. Because I think, you know, I mean, I, anyway. I think it's absurd and well, irresponsible, y- and it, it talk about unethical. Yeah, to to have her up there. Um, it's, I mean, it's it's ridiculous that the liberals thought that that was a wise move. Well, but especially dis- because like instead the B- of distancing themselves from that, like, well, and like, and the BC liberals are much more conservative than they're probably mm-hmm. more aligned with the with. Um, Andrew Shear's party, but, but I, I mean, for sure, it's the federal liberals that put her, oh, her up as a surrogate. So I don't know, like, talk what about a thinking? lack of political acumen and like savvy. No one, <laughs> you might want to think twice about that. Fuck? No one likes her. Like, they were no, beat out by the fucking the NDP little, into yeah. a minority government because that's yeah. how many people disliked her and her fucking bullshit. What the fuck yeah. is up with the? Okay, like, what is the liberals' like strategy on this? The two surrogates they have, Christy Clark and and fucking uh, Sheila Cops. Sheila Cops. What the fuck? These what were women. they thinking? Like, it's almost as if if you have a party run by political hacks, you almost are like shittier. Huh? I think oh that my works. God. All right. So moving on to south of the border. A discussion around House Democrats' plan to pass a resolution denouncing anti-Semitism following backlash to Democratic Representative Ilan Omar's recent comments about Israel went predictably off the rails last week when on The View, co-host Meghan McCain lost her shit. Through her tears, she managed to choke out, quote, This issue is a really intense one for me, and urged her co-host to... Bear with her on it, seeming to anticipate pushback on what she was about to say. Quote, First and foremost, anti-Semitism shouldn't be a left or right issue. I don't think we should be politicizing it on either side. Whether it's 
a tiki tart person in Charlottesville saying, Jews will not replace us, or these more dog whistle movement moments she's seeing, she was seeing from Ilan Omar. She continued, quote, With the rise of anti-Semitism in this country, is it more important to defend party politics, or is it more important to, ob- to object to anti-Semitism? What if Ilan Omar w- were saying, for the past few weeks, were s- what Ilan Omar was saying for the past few weeks was said by a white Republican male? How would you be reacting to it right now? McCain said basically that she was uncomfortable with Omar being on the Foreign Relations Committee in the same vein that she wanted Representative Steve King, a.k.a. a literal Nazi, removed from his committees. So Omar, who has been critical of the pro-Israel lobby APAC and its influence on American politics, drew criticism from Democrats and Republicans last week after she denounced the, quote, political influence in this country that says it is okay for people to push for allegiance to a foreign country, end quote. In her remarks, Omar also argued that people writing her off as an anti-Semite were trying to silence legitimate criticisms of Israel's influence on Washington lawmakers, as reported by CNN. So Democrats were splintered over their support for of Omar this week, with the House resolution to condemn anti-Semitism expanded to include all forms of hate speech and discrimination, including Islamophobia. And the resolution ended up passing the House um, with 23 Democrat, uh, Republicans voting against it, which I believe includes a no vote by the Nazi Steve King. Um, but also just a reminder that a resolution is meaningless. So, Amy, I know this is something that you're quite passionate about. Yeah, I mean, it's, so it's been pretty <laughs> fucked up, but not all that surprising. I mean, it, what's what's interesting is the scope that this conversation is, is finally um, happening on in terms of, you know, who can speak about Palestine and the use of anti-Semitism as a shield against legitimate criticism as, of Israel. Um, you know, it's it's one. And, and the, the other thing is, is the type of a racism um, that attaches to black women and Muslim women and, and black Muslim women in particular who, who take up space in, in, in any sort of public sphere. I mean, um, so, you know, by being the first... Um, you know, one of the f- two first Muslim women in Congress and um, probably the first black Muslim woman. I mean, clearly the first black hijabi and Muslim woman visibly, visibly so. so in Congress. And, and, you know, someone who's not shy about taking policy positions. I mean, uh, and Omar was a re- like a refugee um, whose story should be thought of um, as, you know, it's so funny because Americans love these sort of success stories of someone pulling themselves up their bo- from their bootstraps and like kind of making it um, in America or whatever. But here is someone who, who has done it on her own terms and and has always kind of maintained her identity and maintained, um, you know, credibility in everything she says and does and is, you know, is being treated in such a disgusting way. On top of which, you know, 
the irony that of all the hate and vitriol that she's received, um, people linking her to 9-11, calling her a 9-11, like, you know, a, a ter- like terrorist making, um, you know, effigies of her and all the sort of gross stuff that's happening, which is not dissimilar to what happened, um, you know, around the Barack Hussein Obama sort of backlash. And I remember going to a Tea Party rally in D.C. in 2010 and seeing like people had made like full on like like effigies there's no other way to call them of like him dressed in like you know Saudi garb essentially and like a pictures of like the twin towers burning down and like you know it's no different than what happened then but it's you know now being targeted at, at a black Muslim woman in this most disgusting way and Democrats have not even given it a second thought to admonish the Islamophobia and racism that's being um, projected um, at Ilhan Omar. And we're hearing so much about Megan McCain receiving a backlash on on Instagram, on Twitter. And she's saying, well, this is the most of, you have always been outspoken. This is the most I've ever received in terms of harassment and vitriol online. And it's like, you know, people are criticizing you for your views, for weaponizing your tears and for speaking on behalf of Jewish people, which you are not one um, and taking space in a debate that has nothing to do with you acting as if you're so, you know, been made so vulnerable by it. But, but also like yeah. perpetuating the fear monger, perpetuating the fear mongering and speaking over, <laughs> you know, Jewish people, who yes. of, you know, of whom there is a plurality of, like within whom there's a plurality of views, but many um, folks who are coming to Ilhan Omar's uh, aid and speaking yeah. against this misuse of anti-Semitism, like anti-Semitism is fucking real. Mm-hmm. There's no question about it. Um, and where were Democrats after Charlottesville on anti-Semitism in like a putting a resolution Silent. on the floor, you know, like yeah. where, where are people on Stephen King, like and other folks who are, you know, occupying they give their congressional offices who have been spewing this nonsense and what Elhan Omar is saying is essentially like I have a critical view about the Israeli lobby which is a legitimate thing Mm -hmm. written about you know time and again by academics and it's 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 a known entity and you know I think there are a lot of Jewish Americans who resent the Israeli lobby because it's diminished what other things they could speak about um, and like limited their identity to being solely about a certain type of Israel and a certain type of Zionism that comes at, to a harm of like lives of not just Palestinians, but, you know, uh, J- Jewish people of color who come into Israel. Mm-hmm. Like it is a white Jewish project to be part of a certain kind of Zionism that the Israeli lobby upholds. Yes. Also, like, let's, let's well, quick- think about Netanyahu's what. Netanyahu well, I was just going to say, oh. so like, let's take a moment to evaluate like these people like, you know, Prime Minister Netanyahu in of israel he is has many allegations of corruption and is basically going to be indicted Uh, by the israeli attorney general (laughs) like you know and he's in the middle of an election like there is an election in israel in april and in the wake of these charges um he's now teamed up with the far right coalition in israel in order to ensure his re-election i mean barring i guess an indictment i well yeah we'll see but i mean i'm sure someone else will step up from the party but the same the same type of messaging will carry on without him for sure um but uh yeah that i mean that what some of the and what uh, fuck fucking kills me too is benjamin netanyahu is like plotting you know an illegal war 
in the region trying to get and i mean it's or at least some of his like cabinet ministers are well but he spoke pretty openly about trying to get and and two arab leaders in the neighboring states about you know initiating a war against iran completely unprompted um i mean this this guy is a warmonger through and through um we never get to talk about that we never there's no critical discussion you don't hear in the american mainstream media about the fraud charges Mm -hmm. i read harrods that's how i know about anything that goes on in israel i read israeli newspapers like i would never there's way more critical thought in harrods than you will ever see in the washington post or the new york times i recently discovered them yeah, it's, them and forward. Sure, like, and they yeah. they give you both views. You'll get a Zionist perspective yep. in the op-ed phases. Great, you'll get some Palestinian perspectives and some left-wing yeah. Israeli perspectives. And there's a lot of nuance there. There's, it's frankly like if people knew what how how much richer the media and I mean, and there are a lot of Zionist papers, but Haaretz is just, it's just like a better publication. But like you, you know, it's like here it's so much more stifling, and that's what Elhan is saying. Like the the media and and the culture in DC is you have to you're putting Israel and your allegiance to a foreign country above all else just to even run for office and the financing that APEC puts puts in but anyway I want to get back to fucking Megan McCain like what a I was just gonna say person and and you know it's it's no secret too that her that you know John McCain's also also had a very racist perspective he supported the confederate flag but you know staying up in confederate confederate he wanted to get rid of Martin Luther King Day in Arizona. His his politics on race were were dubious at best. And, you know, so it's no surprise that that that's sort of where she's coming from. Called the Vietnamese gooks. Yeah. 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 And, uh, I mean, he's... his legacy needs to be talked about in those terms. When we talk about Megan McCain, I think we need to look at like what racism is from all of these different perspectives um, and not just allow her to use anti-Semitism um, to bolster herself and her image as being about anti-racism because it's it's not. It's it's anti-Semitism as a tool for a pol- very specific political ends. And, it, and it's not about changing racist minds and it's not about, it's about punishing sp- certain people specifically racialized and Muslim people um, well, for political views that have nothing to do with any form of racism by using racism, by weaponizing this allegation of anti-Semitism. It is a weaponized allegation. And I've been seeing this a lot lately and it's meant to keep <coughs> uh, Muslim women silent. Totally. And so uh, it's a weaponized version of it. Like I, like white supremacy uses a lot of weapons against different people. They like for one of the one of the tenets of white white supremacy is basically to you know I know you I know I am but what are you or I know you are but what am I whatever. At the end of the day, um, what I find is that the charges of racism are denied and then weaponized. And so, for example, what Megan McCain did was that she denies in her whole overture of, you know, on the view, what she does is she denies, denies, denies racism against black and brown people, mm-hmm. but uses anti-Semitism to shield herself from accusations of that racism she perpetuates. Mm-hmm. And therefore, that is how 
racism, the accusation of racism is weaponized by the right. And she does that all the time. And she's not the only one. And now we're moving on to rant and receipts. This is where we each bring a rant and then uh, we'll kind of talk about it. Cool. I'm going to keep it brief and say fuck everybody on the internet and everyone on iTunes who's making Michael Jackson fucking trend for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> Apparently, the number one thing trending on iTunes, like Apple Music, is Michael Jackson uh, because Finding Never or Leaving Neverland, uh, the documentary from HBO, came out. Um, and it's just, I mean, I, I guarantee you none of the people tweeting or listening to his music have listened to the documentary. They are all probably just reading the same garbage articles, restating Michael Jackson's innocence. But because there's no way that you could watch Leaving Neverland and like come out of come out of it with anything but the most, um, you know, fervent support of the two men who've come forward with their stories. Um, I watched it. It's it's long. It's four hours. Um, oh. It's Ouch. two parts on HBO. Um, you can watch it on Crave in Canada. Get a Crave subscription. I don't work for them. This is an unpaid promotion, but they legit have great contact content mm-hmm. and all the HBO stuff. And um, it is just such a visceral and be- like beautiful to watch aesthetically kind of documentary for what it is. And it's very much like. Um you know it's heavy and it's emotional and it and it's no doubt triggering um but it ch- shows you the the two parallel stories um of two men uh who you know as kids at 5 and 7 years of age um sort of were groomed by Michael Jackson and and then were in relationships with him um that he was comparing to to marriage or 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 like full on relationships buying them rings and and you know having them stay for extended periods and in one case um you know so i'll just back up and say it it goes into great detail and it starts in this sort of gentle way by reminding you of why these men were um you know fans of Michael from an early age, they were both, one was an actor in commercials and starred in a commercial, Pepsi commercial with Michael Jackson. And the other was a, a dancer, five years old, really gifted and participated in a dance competition and won the chance to be on, uh, to be on stage with Michael Jackson on his tour in Australia. And like, this is an Australian kid. <laughs> and it's, it was only halfway through the first half of the documentary that I realized I was like, Wade Robson, Wade Robson, that name is so familiar. And I remembered, yeah, that's the fucking yeah. famous choreographer that mm-hmm. I was like obsessed with because I was a big NSYNC fan. And he was like the NSYNC's choreographer. And Britney Spears. And Britney Spears. And he was like 16 years old. He was like a fucking prodigy. But when he was five, he was like already like like a fucking star dressed like Michael and won this dance competition and met him. And then Michael Jackson moved his family to L.A. And like then sort of like started grooming him to sort of become in this relationship. Everything Michael did parallel between these two stories is deliberate, calculated and formulaic. Um, And there's just it's it's fascinating to see it from that perspective um, of the victims of of not or really, frankly, the survivors of of that devastation and and um both both stories were, were extremely troubling and heartbreaking but so sincerely told so credibly told um both men were 
um, you know, speak candidly about how torn they were. Both of them testified as character witnesses for Michael Jackson in uh, his trial in the early 2000s on child molestation charges and all part of his his control over them uh, to testify. And they were still young then. Um, And, um, you know, and then eventually sort of when they came to kind of acknowledge um, what had in fact happened and the interviews, um, not just them, but their mothers as well. And a lot of this is, you know, how could parents have let their kids sleep in Michael Jackson's bed? And the, the funny thing is, like, looking back, like, I remember that trial pretty vividly. I was old enough to remember it. And I was also really into celebrity culture. And, like, I had, like, my daily dose of E.T., Access Hollywood. Wow. Right? Like, yeah, Inside Edition. Uh, it was, like, so, like, really invested at the time. And... Um, you know, and you remember like Macaulay Culkin testifying, right? And Macaulay Culkin still maintains to this day that nothing had happened, but they all had testified to the fact that they were friends with Michael Jackson and that they would have these sleepovers in his bed. Like there was no ambiguity about that. Um, but it's just so wild that you hear these interviewers interviewing Michael, uh, these kids about Michael Jackson and saying like, oh yes, here is friend of Michael Jackson, Wade Robson. It's like, mm. this is a fucking child. Like why are reporters, why are the people on the tours? Why are his assistant? Like so many people were implicated. And like, of course it's, it's no one particular person's fall more than Michael Jackson's, but like there is just like this, you know, just so many silent actors who are so fully aware of like how inappropriate, even if it wasn't sexual, which it clearly was, but just the idea that he was allowed to get away with so fucking much because of celebrity really yeah. at well, the end of the day. And that's the same thing we saw with like Harvey Weinstein, all these people who are just enabling totally, all of these totally. famous people to and, like turning a blind and eye. And the silent jokes and the, you know, like the, the famous, you know, Seth MacFarlane speech at the expense of Harvey Weinstein and everyone's laughing at the Oscars. Like it's the best kept secret in LA and it's like, or worst kept. And it's, and the same was true of, of Michael Jackson and, and the music industry. And, and of course, you know, I think the Jackson family did a really successful job where everyone was working for them and sort of spinning it as, well, Michael was so damaged and he was but a child and he had this stunted adolescence and he was and, and whatever else. And people have really like latched onto that. But what frustrates me is so in, in after this documentary, which I guarantee if you see it, if, if you're able to see it and, and it is tough and it's hard to sit through. And I obviously I didn't do it in one sitting. I did it over three days. Um, I think it's really powerful um, and it's it's gent it's it's like this sort of like it's just a subtle build to it and it's just it's so intense and there's a lot of contemporaneous like video and, and film and stuff and it's very evocative um, but it, it's so but what's frustrating is now you have so many like you know so many people on Twitter spontaneous rallies for Michael's innocence and dance parties and and people like in the streets and countries the world like the world over in support of Michael Jackson in light of this documentary. And I guarantee you most of the people haven't seen it um, but or want to maintain his innocence. And it's so hard to understand why. Um, and, you know, like music and genius is one thing. Like one thing that really struck me was Wade Robson as a choreographer. And this is not to say anything less of the the other man's um, testimony, but just to think about Wade Robson as a choreographer and later a musician as well, who made his career about the dance moves as the second coming of Michael Jackson. You remember Britney Spears and NSYNC were like, their dance moves were always compared to Michael, especially Britney's. 
like he choreographed and like built his music around not around Michael Jackson, but like clearly informed by him. Like that was a huge influence for him. And like, honestly, like it's, it's corrupted for him and it's, you know, like tainted by this, this like really like this really dark piece of it. And I want to be like, you know, this is someone who's also formed our sense of pop culture and music like Wade Robson and no one's talking about like the genius there and also the conflict between genius and art for him as a as a survivor of that harm um, that Michael Jackson beget like I don't really care if you never hear Billie Jean again I sort of more care about like what how traumatic it is for Wade Robson to like continue to choreograph moves or not continue to choreograph moves and to hear songs that are so steeped in Michael Jackson's influence um and it's just it's just wild to me that like we you know we we allow a certain kind of genius and celebrity to excuse so much fucking behavior and 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 how just how disgusting fans are in terms of how far they take that yeah so I haven't seen it I am not going to watch it just because I'm me neither it's just too much for me um but there are a number of podcasts who have talked about it. Um, the Daily talked about it, I think, on Friday. Uh, Keep It talked about it. Uh, the The Dailies was quite interesting because they spoke to their one of their culture reporters, mm. a black guy, Wesley Morris. And basically he was like saying him. how he grew up idolizing mm-hmm. Michael Jackson mm-hmm. and he would like do all of these like dance moves yeah. and all of these things and... It just kind of so it, it was a, a narrative about how the influence he and impact he ha- Michael Jackson had on his life and how he's going to like view that going forward. And I think like that is something that is missing from the conversation really totally is yeah. a, like, OK, recognizing that this person that I idolize and loved so deeply was so also so deeply problematic. How do I grapple with that? And. How do we move forward? Mm -hmm. And I think it's what we talk about all the time, recognizing that people are inherently flawed and that as long as you are willing to accept that people are flawed and that some people are going to tell you, don't play that music, you can listen to it at home. Fine. Like if Wesley Morris wants to listen to it at home because it it evokes such like a very happy time in his childhood, but recognizing that, you know, his Michael Jackson's personal life was kind of fucked up. So, for example, will you play Michael Jackson in your classes? Uh, I play one cl- one song only, right? Re- quasi regularly. So, like, will if you I continue don't, continue to play it. We can't hear a shrug. I don't know. This is an audio podcast. Aaron. <laughs> this is a very like physical shrug. I don't know. It, so it's it's a remix of Thriller. So yeah. I mean, it only generally comes out in and around Halloween. I think that's what's hard about this is that this is not an R. Kelly that you could be like, okay, whatever. Like this is somebody who has, who basically remade what pop is. He influenced anything, any sort of music that we listen to. Yeah, that we listen to now. So we're going to hear pieces of Michael. We're going to see pieces of Michael. Even, even with Beyonce, we're going to see it. Sure. Bruno Mars. You know, um, and that's what makes it like, damn. But my, <laughs> but my ears sting now. Like if I hear an R. Kelly song, I, I, I can't even, I, I can't. Like my body shuts down. If I hear a Michael song now, I, I can't. I just, I can't, I can't sit through it. 
I won't listen to and it. I won't fair. inflict it on other people. That's fair. And um, I think I think you know. You know how many playlists I had to go back through? <laughs> Listen. All, all the amateur Girl, I would have no music. I have that okay. I put I'm just on. Like, I'm just like, I don't even know. Like, honestly, with, with all that's happened, I'm like, I would have no music whatsoever. But, the, but you know what? That's almost fine. Like, there is infinite amount of music generated in the world. But we set a certain amount above the rest. And I think in Michael Jackson's case... His ability to rape children was facilitated by his celebrity and his music and his records. And I think participating in that, even though he's not alive and he's not the... Uh, he's you know, lucky he's dead, he's I will say that. He's so yep. fucking lucky he's you know, dead. I remember thinking that when I, when I saw like tweets go by and, 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 I and think, read some op-eds. I was like, damn, you lucky you dead. Also, can we please like acknowledge that you know for all the people who... Um, allowed this to happen even oprah's implicated yeah and it's funny because she does an interview which i haven't listened to with both of the men and uh talks to them from a perspective of herself also being i mean i don't know that she centers herself as a in the interview as a survivor but but it's from the you know it's from the perspective of grooming and child abuse because that's something Mm -hmm. she's experienced firsthand um, but you, but you're not wrong because she did. I remember seeing those interviews, the original in- interviews on yep. the Oprah Show with with Michael after the allegations. Uh, I remember them quite vividly. Mm-hmm. And and you're and I think she she tried to challenge him, but she also gave him space, and she never settled one way or the other. Yeah, you know what I mean. She wasn't like coming out. Yeah, she was no Gail. Yeah, fuck, love Gail. Yeah, ten out of ten for Gail. Pay Gail. Mm. <laughs> I just think this is just gonna. Be- it's one of those things where I, I'm like, wow, okay. These both of those documentaries, the R. Kelly documentary and this and Leaving Neverland, are centered from the perspective of the survivor, and we don't get that enough. And I think when you watch it, whether however hard it will be for you, there's no way you'll come back from that with with a view that is even remotely sympathetic. To either of these figures, not you, but the universal yeah, you, regardless yeah, yeah. of your your sympathies or empathies or, or willing to sort of give the benefit of the doubt or, or whatever or separate the two, the music and, and the person. Because you watch this, there's no I guarantee you there's no coming back. So my rant this week is about a conference held at the University of Ottawa in partnership with the Canada School of Public Service, which is a federal government government department. So the conference is part of a series called the Prime Minister's Series 2020. And the series highlights transformative policy initiatives of Canadian prime ministers. Uh, the purpose of the day-long event is to inform, educate, and inspire policymakers and public service leaders to conceive and deliver change. So the series began in 2019 this year with Brian Mulroney, which was this event. And the 2020 event will highlight <laughs> the accomplishments and challenges faced by Prime, former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien. So this day-long event cost $400. And uh, it had several panels. So the policy ideas that were discussed 
were tax reform, so replacing the manufacturer's sales tax with the GST. Um, that that uh, panel had one woman on it. Um, then they how many how many people of color, Aaron? Uh, I mean, I don't think any. I f- remember looking up all of these people, and there were maybe one person of color. I don't actually know there weren't. Anyway, zero. Uh, the other policy was. Um, they talk about uh, environment. So again, this one, this, oh, well, this is nice. This p- panel had three women out of five. Then there was a uh, fireside chat with the right honorable Brian Mulrooney. Um, then there was uh, free trade, um, a panel that also had one woman. Uh, and then NAFTA, um, which mm, had two women. So, you know, a few women, you know, a hand, barely a handful, uh, mostly men. Um, so that's that's nice of them. Um, so I followed the the hashtag on Twitter and noticed that, man, there were a lot of white people tweeting about this conference. And t- from what I understand, it was sold out. There were about 500 people in the room and white people were tweeting well, Aaron, we're supposed to be grateful that we even don't have to just clean the room, okay? So one of the tweets was a panel of white people with one woman. So I quote tweeted it and said, oh, wow, cool. Like, look, this woman's so lucky that she was allowed to even speak on this panel. And uh, people were saying, oh, great insights from all of these people. So obviously I made a comment about the white people and like, oh, well, maybe it'd be nice to have some people of color at this event. It's not about race, Aaron. So who, of course, replies to me, but a man (laughs) and says, "Um, you do have to remember that we are talking about a different time period. The mid to late 80s. We can't be history revisionist. Reflect the reality of the time. So my retort to him was, oh, so then, um, you know, if we were to look back at uh, the yearbooks of our former cabinet members and prime ministers and we saw them in blackface, we would be able to excuse that because, you know, in the 70s, in the 80s, uh, that that was a cool thing for them to do. So we'll that, be was, like, that was not a cool thing in the 70s. So we'll let, we'll let them get away with it? Well, listen, this guy didn't want to publicly debate this with me. No, no. He took it to my direct messages, slid into my DMs, and was like, honestly, Aaron, you're being a little ridiculous. Basically told me I was creating an Orwellian vision, a version of history. And... He could not and refused to see it from my perspective. So basically, you know, this conference was 500 policymakers from across the federal government. And from what I understand, given some people who tweeted to me, it was maybe half a dozen to a dozen people of color out of 500, which is crazy. That is an insanely low number of people, but also probably reflective of the fact that they looked at the people speaking and were like, oh, cool. Like, no one looks like me on these panels. Or just like, this isn't an issue I would give two fucks about because the perspectives reiterated I've heard a thousand times yes. over. Yes. Well, well, funny you should mention that because earlier this week, 
I was at Invest Ottawa had brought in like basically a Silicon Valley tech mm-hmm. um, VC um, type person, a black woman, and they put her on the front of like they just put her face on the communications on the communications you should see how diverse that audience was it wasn't just black women who came out it's brown women it's other women of color it was the most diverse audience yet they surrounded her with an all-white panel oh fuck off seriously and then (sighs) rbc came on the mic and was like, oh, we're doing diversity, we're doing diversity. But why are the photos they showed of their diversity just pure white people? <gasps> yeah. Maybe one person of color at, in the background. So- All white people, white men for international women's day too and i was just like you all are full of shit. And you know, here's what i want to say. Um, and this does go back to there's a whole overarching theme of the PM. And I would like to just say that you got to do more than just put faces of color or women on your whatever. You actually they actually have to have their own agency. And what that means is that if they fucking disagree with you, they fucking disagree with you. Yeah, so... And they have the space to express themselves, just like a white man would. So then I went on a Twitter rant following my conversation with this asshole who slid into my DMs who decided he didn't want to litigate this with me in public because, heaven forbid, people fucking see what his actual opinions are. Um, That's what screenshots are for. Listen, I'm so close to posting them. Anyway, so basically my point is that, you know, I take his point that, you know... They're bringing in people who are in cabinet, prime ministers, important positions at the time. However, however, if the whole theme of the day is to talk about transformative change, then let's talk about transformative change for who? Because if we're talking about the changes to the GST, then, you know, at the time in the late 80s, early 90s, we didn't do gender-based analysis in the way we do it now because it didn't become a policy in the government until 1995. And so, okay, so let's say GST. Oh, how does that, what impact did that have on women? Did that change the way that it, that they, you know, entered the workforce? Did it take women out of the workforce? Um, obviously, um, you know, what about indigenous people? Because, you know, they have um, status cards and therefore don't have to pay tax. Um, But was there kind of a learning curve? Was there an increase of people um, applying for status cards who didn't have them previously? Um, Talking about trade. How has trade treated Indigenous people and women in this country when it was implemented? And what sort of corrective measures did they have to take? Because as policymakers, our goal is to create policies that have the fewest unintended consequences. But the reality is is that we're going to make mistakes because... You know, we all have blind spots, you know, and the way we design a policy isn't necessarily what's get pa- what gets passed in the House of Commons and through the Senate and gets royal assent. And that's just the way it is. Um, so, you know, if we want to talk about transformative change, we have to and if we're especially if we're looking back, we can actually evaluate 
these ideas for, on their merits and the way they impacted people. Because if we really just want to learn about the GST and its implication and hear about from Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, all these assholes have books. We can just fucking read a book or an, listen to an audiobook about the GST because those exist. I mean, mm. God, that sounds boring. So why do you want to listen to a bunch of people talk about it? Also, let's just point out that on the environment panel, on the environmental panel, fucking Elizabeth May was on it. I'm pretty sure she wasn't in cabinet in the yeah, late yeah, 80s. Yeah. So what is this guy's fucking point? Well, okay. I, I don't even know what to say now. Because you're right. Where was Elizabeth May in the 80s? She wasn't in cabinet. Mm-mm. So what is this reflection? But, but she's the Green Party, so therefore... So what's this reflection of the Times bullshit? Is what I want to know. It's an excuse people make because they don't want to actually create space for racialized people. Or criticism. You, know, you just cut through that like a warm knife through butter <laughs> or criticism they don't want they want to like have a giant circle jerk and be like look at we created the gst i'll, I'll just say I, this like, i never want to hear about trade without hearing from a racialized person who is not from north america mm-hmm. or at least not from canada and the u.s you want to talk mm-hmm. about nafta or free trade let's let's talk about it from mexico's perspective like yep. put someone from mexico on the panel Ooh, that's radical <laughs> listen amy they weren't in cabinet at the time. No. They weren't in cabinet at the time. They Amy. weren't quote unquote you have important. To reflect the Their times. view on our decision making process is clearly <laughs> not relevant at but all. But like if so gender based analysis is required for any sort of document that goes to cabinet for policy. And if five five hundred p- policymakers are in a room and not critically analyzing these for, like p- tr- quote unquote transformative policies then they're failing at their job, which is a an, a basic requirement of their job. And it just kind of tells me that like they're not able to think critically about the consequences of the policies that they're actually making. It also tells me there's no one in a position uh, where they were going to get a ticket for $400 paid for by work to send them to this panel, mm-hmm. who's a racialized person. Or a woman. Well, they would have to be in a certain position. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like they would have to be at least management. It, te- and it not tells lower you. Management. Yeah, it tells you and what the stra- like what the upper echelon actually looks like. Exactly, and this is from the upper echelon to the upper echelon. This seems like more of a class discussion than anything, because um, it would be nice if we did have some diverse views on these things and this is the thing when you say diversity when you say when you say these things <coughs> it's not just something that's just that you just put out there it has to be reflected through your panels through your policy through every part through your personnel everything and the thing is it's going to be hard see personnel the three p's and it's going to be hard and it's going to take more time than you probably are used to but you know what and you're going to have to make different Two fucking relationships. Bad. Yeah. And you're going to have to make different relationships and you're going to have to leverage um, other people into spaces that you're not comfortable in because they're spaces that you don't dominate and where you're not centered. Ooh, boo hoo. Welcome to the real world. Welcome to our experience. So in other words, if you want, if you're going to make this a part of your sort of branding RBC, then I expect that I won't see pictures of, it, they literally had a banner that said inclusion and diversity and had just pure white people in this photo in front of the ban- banner, much less half of them were white men. Listen, 
They must come from the Heidi Montag School of Diversity. Apparently, brunettes. <sighs> that was their diversity. Oh, my turn. <clears throat> um, so I'm going to go on to the subject that everybody loves to complain about, but nobody actually knows what it's like in the real terms. And that's online abuse. And online abuse towards black women is some of the worst abuse. Black and Aboriginal women and Muslim women are some of the most abused people online. So if you recall, the clerk of the Privy Council discovered that the Internet is bad. Wah, wah. I know. <laughs> anyway. So, um, a couple of weeks ago, Michael Wernick, clerk, clerk of the Privy Council, testified before the Justice Committee about SNC-Lavalin and uh, talked about him fielding these social media insults. Um, let me tell you what some of these insults were. <laughs> You'll amount to an absolute nobody in Canadian history. Oh. <laughs> Ouch. Can't wait for my children and grandchildren to read about you. Although that is contradictory, but who said that the internet was smart all the time? Anyway, uh, let me. You should be fired. Oh, it's a deep cut. Deep, deep. A disgrace to Canada. Overpaid bureaucratic liberal bozo. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. I co-sign on all of these. I know, right? Okay. Now, contrast this with two black women I will, I will talk about. Oh my Diane, God, this is such a great exercise. Diane Abbott and Meghan Markle. Okay. Mm. So I will start with Diane Abbott because you guys are waiting for Meghan. You know, Megan. So anyway, Diane Abbott is an MP from the Hackney region in London, in Parliament. She is one of the first, if not the first, female black, first black woman MP elected to Parliament. Uh, she's no stranger to targeted abuse. So Amnesty International did like a, um, you know, a, a researcher survey or whatever, a uh, research piece on um, basically Twitter data. They use Twitter data to prove that women especially are targeted online disproportionately. But what they saw with Diane Abbott was like so intense that they had to create basically uh, a kind of subsection for her. So um, Diane Abbott received almost half, 45.1% of all abusive tweets in Jesus the election Christ. running run up to the 2017 election. Excluding Diane Abbott, black and Asian women MPs, Asian in the UK means um, Southeast Asian. So brown, black and brown women uh, in Westminster received 35% more abusive tweets than white women MPs. Online abuse cuts across party lines affecting women from all UK, um, all UK parties. In so much as 
in the whole period running up to the election, the whole election period, Diane Abbott received a higher percentage of abusive tweets than the next four people combined. This is a black woman. Okay. So what are these tweets, you may say? So while Michael Warnick whines with his fragile self about, oh, they told me I should retire. This is what people are writing about Diane Abbott. You forgot fat, disgusting, obese, chicken-loving nigger. An acid attack would probably make your face look better, you fat nigger. (gasps) I can't. Uh Uh-huh. Gotta put a trigger warning on that shit. Okay, yeah, (laughs) okay. And there's more, which I won't discuss for for trigger warning reasons. Okay, so um, next we have Meghan Markle. So Meghan Markle has also received... A, dispor- a disproportionate amount of racist, <coughs> um, toxic tweets, even so far as um, she was on a panel somewhere for International Women's Day. She's like, I can't. I can't basically go online because I see all this horrific stuff. <laughs> and also in so far as Kensington Palace has... Um, decided to take matters of into their own hands in terms of their own um, Twitter chat, no, not Twitter, but social media channels. And they have become moderating oh, wow. these, these, these social media posts. And basically they use racial epithets, i.e. Raci- racism to describe Meghan Markle. Apparently it's increased since she's since her pregnancy too and um yeah so that's what she's had to deal with i mean you can give us the flavor for a couple but people have been warned um i will i it's it's around the same thing i know that harry is a race traitor by the way and um apparently these uh kensington palace has put up these new social media guidelines um which help the royals exercise control over what's posted on their own online channels and um they reserve the right to send any comments they deem appropriate to law enforcement authorities Mm -hmm. for investigation as we feel necessary or is required by law end quote okay so Michael. <laughs> Honestly, when he walked into the committee with like that stack of fucking printouts off Twitter, grandpa, <laughs> my jaw dropped. And the best was the chair being like, I, I, I'm sorry, sir. He was trying. He was kissing ass all week. The he fucking was, chair yeah, that dressed this committee. He was like, sir, sir, how are these relevant? <laughs> he was like trying so hard so, not to like, be disrespectful. I have two points. So for... Michael Warnick to introduce those quote unquote as evidence oh onto the record for the committee. The mic, it's not visible, but and that's the thumping you hear. Um, <laughs> he would have had to have paid to get them translated because you could only submit that's true. bilingual documents that's true. to committee. Word. So we just paid for Michael Warnick's whining. Okay. Second, 
Um, he has already called social media a vomitorium. So also, and because he's a senior executive, the actual odds of him reading his own Twitter feed is very low. So there's like a staffer who is reading these or a public servant reading these tweets and being like, ugh, this is not nice. Or being like, ugh, I guess I should flag this because I don't, I'm not on Twitter myself. I'm like, I just use it because it's my job and I just don't understand how the internet works. Also, I'm probably a white person and so this is mean and people shouldn't be saying these things about him. But also, like, in fairness, I'm sure Justin Trudeau's Twitter mentions are well, probably far way worse. worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, imagine juxtaposing those two things. Like, two white guys and Trudeau's are worse. And he's just like... Bleh. I mean, this is Wernick's first, like, real exposure, I think, and, like, an, on such a broad mm-hmm. scale. And, I mean, he's he's clearly never read the comments of any newspaper article. <laughs> like, no. God help him when he logs onto the CBC and sees what the comment <laughs> section says about him. The National Post is quite a robust comment that section. That, too, yeah. I mean, it's, it's wild to me that he was so flabbergasted. But it, it actually tells you how out of touch he is. Yes. Like, he, he probably doesn't read shit for shit like yeah yeah he is out of touch like to think that 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 made him clutch pearls is just like seriously dude seriously and then comes out and is like i fear for this country it's like (laughs) really i mean he's the one who started off his session last time being like people will be assassinated in this free (laughs) in his first set of testimony it's like what did you think people would say in reaction to that your opening premise was democracy's on the decline and then you got upset that people told you to quit your job like that is like the lowest end of the spectrum of democracy being on the decline <laughs> frankly it actually shows that democracy is really engaged because yes. people can speak truth to power on the internet <laughs> and call out like the highest paid public servant on twitter in critical ah, terms that's it, exactly people, it Amy. well and kind of to what you said earlier people want accountability for everyone but themselves that's really what it comes down to mm-hmm. all right well uh that does it for this week uh don't forget to check out the ottawa C- citizen where we had an op-ed on international women's day about snc and power in politics um, so get social with us. We're on Twitter at bad and bitchy on Instagram at bad and bitchy pod, Facebook slash bad and be podcast and email us bad and be pod at gmail.com. Bye. Another example of weaponizing racism is when people say that, like the people who have been in my mentions lately, well, Andrew Scheer is going to be like, you know, you can't vote for Andrew Scheer. So basically, what else do you have? I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, no, I go just, ahead. No, I just, Continue. I just love the ignorance in that comment. Because it is ignorant I, I as mean, fuck. It's, the, it's, it's clearly something that's being, cons- like, concertedly being spread by liberal hacks. Yes. It's, I, and, and mind you, I think some, and some more legit, I shouldn't say that because I know some friends are listening to this who've, who've said this to me, who are people who feel burned by what happened in Ontario mm. um, of Doug Ford 
you know, sort of creeping in there and, and beating out, you know, Kathleen Wynne, who was certainly the lesser of, of evils and, and actually had done some pretty progressive things, but had the unfortunate, you know, luck of tying her, hitching her wagon to the Liberal Party for, you know, for some of its worst years of also corruption and whatever else. Yeah. Um, but I think people feel feel the sting of, of Doug Ford and, and also the very real effects of what the, his election has meant. Um, but it's 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 just so, so wildly ignorant. But you don't weaponize it against a black woman. No. And I think like what's really frustrating is that that allows us to maintain like mediocre mediocrity in politics to, to when we always compare th- when we're our voting choices is between lesser evils. Yeah. And I think it's yeah. really ignorant in terms of, you know, what our parliamentarian process like parliamentary process, which is, you know, I would love we I would love for us to kick the uh, kick the liberals down a few notches, have a liberal minority government, elect yep. a few more new Democrats. Yeah, those were some of the better. <laughs> I think that some are I, the better. I years. would I would like that too. And I just want to say you cannot you cannot turn your face and ignore um, corruption mm-hmm. issues mm-hmm. with a liberal party because you fear the election of another party that a might not happen, but eventually will happen. Right. Yeah. And guess what? When you decide to to hold them accountable, you have no credibility Mm -hmm. because you for for a lot of people, a lot of people, accountability is only for the other guy. It's Mm -hmm, not for mm -hmm. their guy. And I'm fucking tired of this shit. I hope the mic picks up my snaps. (laughs) Oh, I I will. I will turn it up. (laughs) But it's true. And I'm sick of this shit. And it's bullshit. People are people are like. Oh, well, they are excusing everything Justin yeah. Trudeau does yeah. because he's their guy. They're no different from a Trump voter. But the thing is, is like this has been something that has like been in. Well, we're seeing, I think, in two different spaces. One is in pop culture where they're like, oh, well, I am a stand of so and so. So I'm going to like yeah. overlook uh, all of these things that R. Kelly has done, for example, mm. or girl, Michael whatever. is coming down the pipe. <laughs> Uh, or like, Michael, for example. Yeah. yeah, fine. Second, it goes to this other conversation that I don't know if we've been having necessarily on this podcast, but I've been having offline is this idea that people are increasingly of the belief that you can't, a person cannot hold two truths in their head at once. Yeah. Whereas like, okay, I can believe um, that this person is right, but I can also see the other perspective or I can believe why you know, even though I agree with this belief, why they are inherently problematic for other reasons. And like, you know, we are humans. We have higher cognitive functioning than other beings. And we can hold both of these things in our brains at the same time. Correct. <sighs> and this is where I say, <sighs> I'm glad I'm not a stan. No, I no. Well, that's what I loved about, um, you know, MP Selena's statement about <laughs> this idea of, you know, maybe partisan politics isn't for me. Yeah. Partisan politics, requ- it seems to require or in its current iteration requires this unquestioning adherence. Even internally, for everyone out there who thinks you can change things from the inside, there's not an openness to that. And when you, you want can't. to, we can't. And when you want to raise things as she earnestly tried to do, you will get shouted down and told that you are ungrateful. And that candor was so refreshing because Ugh. that's sort of how I felt about 
you know, the NDP and other political parties there, there, and that hasn't always historically been true, at least of the NDP, but has been in the last couple decades. Mm-hmm. It's like they've sort of fallen into this as well. And I and, and think political parties feel like there's this, you know, sort of strict guide you have to adhere to. You don't air dirty laundry when you're inside. You know, yes. we're got to we are we're in it to win it. And any questions that, you know, or anything that deviates from the plan that's coming from unelected people, by the way, is, you know, is something to be uh, avoided and, and uh, um, you know, shut down instantly. There's no room for debate of any kind. Yeah, I will say this about the NDP is that for all of the like public issues that they have, you know, they are at least willing to challenge the party's position on things. I think we have I a healthier do, debate. I mean, it's more public I, than yeah, other I, parties that's have. That's what I was just going to say. But is when that, you're like, inside you know, as you a need staff to... or an MP, I think people do feel that they are being a bit more, like, or increasingly, at least actually, frankly, under Leighton and Mulcair, there was a bit more of, like, a, <laughs> we're going to try to professionalize in the way that the other parties have. Like, they were trying to move towards mm-hmm. that. And there was a bit more of, like, it's not just MPs are whipped, like, staff are whipped and that kind of thing. And, and I get that a little bit more, but... But you're right. Like we have a bit more of a robust culture of that kind of dialogue. And like, I I would say my only criticism criticism is that like it's just happening too much in public, and it needs to be behind closed doors. And like that debate should be encouraged, regardless of where on the political spectrum you are. Yeah. But like at the same time, you still kind of need to like show a united front. And like I get that in you know the cases that we're seeing with the Liberal Party, it gets to a breaking point, and then I think that's when it's fine. But like when right. you're just kind of being petty and mean like well i just disagree with this policy position that's just a little it just it just shows that like you know if you who if like someone can't can like if there's not a cohesive vision then what are you voting for? i mean it depends who you are and what your role in the party is and i think the thing is that there's so many uh there's so there's been too far of a move to the right in general by all the major parties i would agree even, with that even even under trudeau's liberals yes. who at the most have yes. just you know virtue signaling to use it in the proper sense yeah on certain issues and have not actually followed through you know whether it's from the pipelines no. to at their, you know the actual lack of action um <laughs> on you know um indigenous and, funding can, issues and can to- we talk about the marijuana policy too that came in and and people people said look this has a disproportionate effect on black and brown people. And they were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, they like, said that like, they agreed with that perspective and then did nothing about did it nothing. until the very last second. They're, listen, yeah, can we talk-, talk about this brand here, this Trudeau I brand? I mean, we're, we were talking about Megan McCain, so I'm going to oh, go with no. Oh, shit. <laughs> Fair enough. Sorry. I think I this is, an, I think, the, I think this is a, like, I lost an, the plot. This is an interesting discussion, and I think this is something we will probably touch on further yeah. as we get into like more the the 2019 election yeah, yeah, season no, it's fine we can but I, I definitely think that there are some things here that we should just definitely unpack later sure 